be looking at John's account of Palm Sunday is what we traditionally now call it. It's in John 12, uh, verses 12 through 19. I'm going to read those here at the start, and then we'll get some context, and we'll be looking at this account. Uh, and then we'll have Easter next week, obviously, and look at that account as well. So in John 12, 12 through 19, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, setting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right, that's our text for today. And this describes Christ's final trip into Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey. And this story appears in all four Gospels. It's traditionally called the triumphal entry. And triumphal means a celebration of a great victory or achievement. All right, triumphal for Christ, I would say when you count his obedience to the Father and him doing only what the Father wills. But it's tragic. It's tragic for Israel because the people don't, didn't know exactly who Jesus was, right? They wanted a warrior Messiah. And when they realized that that wasn't what Jesus was, their shouts of Hosanna are going to go to crucify him, Right? In just a matter of days, Jesus enters, he weeps over Jerusalem because they're not recognizing their Messiah for who he is. Therefore, they're going to be judged later by him in 70 AD, something we've talked about many times before. So John's account is shorter than what you're going to find in the uh, Synoptic Gospels. There's a lot of things that are found uh, that are left out. You'll find in the other accounts, vice versa. This is just how it works. It's was all the writers have their purpose for the audiences they're writing to, right? So the accounts for that, uh, that accounts for the differences that exist between them. So John's account's very spiritual, obviously. The whole gospel of John is spiritual. It's more theological, too. I believe he's motivated by theological purposes, or the Holy Spirit was motivating him for that. And the context here is Lazarus. He's been resurrected, Right? He's been resurrected from the dead by Jesus after he had been in the grave for four days. Then because the Jewish leaders want to kill him, Jesus and his disciples, they leave. They go on, uh, to the, the, this other region near the wilderness. And chapter 12 tells us that six days before Passover, Jesus returns to Bethany. And there's this dinner, the supper made for him. In the home of a leper that he had healed, uh, Simon. So Simon's family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, 
And the disciples are all there to gather. And they're there to celebrate the Lord because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And during this time, you, I'm sure you all remember, Mary, in this expression of her love for, for Jesus, breaks this alabaster jar, right? It's a pure nard. It's valued at a, a year's wages. He, she pours it all over Jesus. And this is an act of worship. So now we start to see the shift in the ministry of Christ, okay? Up to this point, he mostly kept veiled his identity as Messiah. Uh, this is often referred to as the messianic secret, all right? By that, they refer to the fact that the Lord cautioned his disciples not to tell that he was the Messiah after he performed some, some mighty sign or wonder and you'll know he said that to all the people that he would heal as well right go tell no one right and you would think that since he came to present himself as messianic king that when he performed a miracle that demonstrated that he had come from god and was more than actually human right then he would say go and tell everybody about this right but he didn't he doesn't do that he said Shh, be quiet and I believe, as most people think, the reason for that is because of their concept of a king. What it was. Their concept was wrong. They thought of a king as a great political figure who would bring them deliverance from Rome. And that their kingdom would become a kingdom as it was in the days of David or Solomon. But now things are changing because here Jesus presents himself as a messianic king. And this now is because his hour has now come. And up until now, it had not yet come, obviously, right? Various times in his ministry, he states this. In John 2, 4, he says to, to his mother, what, like, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7, 30, uh, they're seeking to arrest him. And it says no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, uh, these words he spoke in the treasury as he was teaching, it says, taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Things are changing now because now his hour has come. This is the last week of his ministry. So he's clearly will clearly demonstrate that he is the promised messianic king. Uh, and, and later in John 12, he says this. He says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified in 1223. So from the, the resurrection of Lazarus on Jesus is deliberately provoking the Jewish leaders, right? They wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to do it at the Passover, all right? Because there'd be a riot among the people. It says that in Matthew 26. But for scripture to be fulfilled, he needed to die as the Passover lamb for his people on Passover. And that's exactly what happens. So we started where it says the next day, the lar there's this large crowd, okay? The next day, this is like a time marker if you will it's marking the timeline in the week of the passover feast and this large crowd had come to jerusalem to celebrate this 
So you have all these pilgrims from Galilee. Jesus had a great following from there. They hear Jesus is coming to the feast, so they head out to meet him. Now, to understand, it was like a large crowd. When we read large crowd, or I just said it, you're thinking maybe like local sporting event, right? Gymnasium full of people. Um, that, but that's not even close to <laughs> historically, all right? Uh, you, to understand just how crowded it was in Jerusalem at this time, um, you, could, you could compare it to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, okay? Like shoulder to shoulder, right? On top of one another. Historical records, there's one that describes Passover. This is between, uh, or the, well, it's probably 64, 65 AD. Uh, it, it says there's 2.7 million people there that took part. And that did not even count defiled, what they considered defiled people and foreigners. Now, another one would estimate the crowd range from 180,000 on the low end all the way up to 3 million to, to the high end. So uh, it's still big, right? It doesn't matter if it's 180,000 or 2.7 million. It's a lot because the normal population in Jerusalem was only 25,000 people, all right? So... <laughs> You imagine, you know, we're not even that big. So you imagine uh, two million people coming here to gather up on like the square, what that would be like. I mean, that would, the radius all around, right? I mean, six mile probably. <laughs> so the pilgrims from Jerusalem, they're having heard of this remarkable miracle of the resurrection of a dead man, right? Lazarus. Uh, and, and, and the person who had performed it is nearby, they go out to see him. Now, Passover, we know, Passover is from the Old Testament, right? We've we talked about this uh, as well. It's a time, they celebrated this, a time of deliverance, all right? So there's big expectation in this week. It's like exciting. Messianic expectations are high in Israel because people long to be delivered from the Roman rule. And so in the midst of that excitement, right, Jesus seems to be a likely candidate. So they take branches of palm trees. They go out to meet him and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All right, so now this is the only gospel that mentions palm branches, and this is where we get the whole idea of Palm Sunday. Palm branches were used each time that the hallow, is what it's called, the hallow uh, uh, psalms. This is 113 through 118. Anytime they were sung. The psalms were traditionally sung during the Feast of Tabernacles, Hanukkah, and Passover, and the waving of branches had become this common uh, practice at national celebrations in Israel. So that Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. All right. Now that, that was sung on the Feast of Tabernacles and it's considered to be a messianic psalm. The Jews understood this psalm to refer to the coming Messiah as well to rescue his people, right? You would think everything would click. <laughs> so the, the crowd that we see in our text is identifying Jesus as the conquering hero that they have been looking for for years. 
And just so we don't miss the point, in our text in John, they added even the king of Israel. Right? It's not in Psalm 118. I didn't read that because it's not there. They added that. So that's a clear indication that they regarded the one who comes in the name of the Lord as the king who would deliver his people. And I read it, save us, we pray, O Lord. There's no Hosanna there, right? We see, save us, we pray. Now, unlike its many uses today in choruses and, and other things, Hosanna is not an expression of praise. Uh, but it's a prayer, a supplication, and it's almost in the form of desperation. Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase, which literally means save us now. So as Jesus is riding along the road, the crowds are sh shouting, save us, save us now. Save us from the Roman oppression. Now, Jesus indeed had salvation to offer. He was coming to save, but it's a far different kind of salvation than what they expected, right? His salvation is going to run much deeper than that. So he's headed to Jerusalem. There's hundreds of thousands of people yelling, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of, and they would have said Yahweh instead of God. And the disciples are probably like, what's going on? <laughs> like... They were scared, all right? They're very aware of the opposition to Jesus. They're very aware of the dangers that face them in Jerusalem. It states it earlier in John 11, because they didn't want to go there when Lazarus was dead because they feared for their lives, all right? This had to have been quite the shock to the system to be riding in and this just magnificent display of like, well, celebration, right? Welcoming him. The entire city, right? Pretty uh, Plus more are welcoming Jesus with open arms. They're probably like, I don't know. What are they thinking? You know, I'm, it's just assumption, right? I don't know what they're thinking, but I, I, I'm almost, I'm thinking some are like, uh, oh no, right? This is bad. I'm thinking others are probably like, yeah, I'm with, I'm with Jesus, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, they probably liked it. I don't know. The Thunder Brothers are probably like. <laughs> All right, so Jesus finds this donkey. He doesn't find it. Other, other gospels, he sends them out. But he is on this donkey. And it said, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, let's talk about the donkey for a second. How many times have in our lives go here's jesus the king you know here's he's god the son of man son of god and all they can all they can do is give him a donkey right and like it's a bad thing i mean i've heard that a lot <clears throat> but the donkey was a domestic was domesticated all right and uh was used as a a beast of burden uh from the time of uh the patriarchal period so it was renowned for its strength and was the animal that was normally ridden uh, by non-military personnel so that's important because the scripture indicates that riding a donkey is uh, 
it is not beneath the dignity of Israel's noblemen at all. It's not beneath the kings. David indicates that his choice of, of Solomon to be king by decreeing, be, decreeing that the young man should ride on the king's own mule, right? First Kings 1 Kings 1.33, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to uh, Gion. So Christ's entry into Jerusalem is a reenactment of King Solomon's triumphant ride into the city of, of Jerusalem. All right, that all, that's 1 Kings uh, 1, 28 through 40. And ironically, illustrated, this is what he's doing. He's illustrating his role as both the promised Davidic king and the sacrificial lamb. And the purpose, so the, the purpose for riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was to fill prophecy as well, right? And therefore, it would proclaim his identity as Messiah. And Matthew says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, right? Matthew 21, 4. So everything that's going on here is very intentional, all right? This is God's plan, all right? This is his sovereign will. It's, being, it's very calculated, He's riding this donkey to fulfill prophecy in the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Zechariah is one of the three post Exile prophets, right? Our text in John says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, setting on a donkey's colt. The opening words, fear not, are not found in the Hebrew or in any version of Zechariah 9.9. And it replaced, and replaced rejoice greatly. Okay? So Zechariah 9.9 starts with rejoice greatly, but... In John, it says, fear not. It's thought that they are drawn from Isaiah 40, verse 9, where they are addressed to the one who brings good things to Zion. And daughter of Zion is used as a synonym for Jerusalem and its people. The people had returned from exile to Jerusalem. Their heads are very low, all right, because of everything and the history that has taken place. And the prophet sets their minds on God's promise of deliverance. And it wasn't going to come uh, from Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great, but it would come in gentleness and humility. Now you think about the kings of history, all right? Who's gentle and humble? <laughs> right? So Christ's kingdom is not of this world with all of its pride and all of its vainglory and, and arrogance and things like that, right? Now, the rabbis had a real problem with this verse because they saw the single advent of the Messiah as an advent of triumph and victory, but again, as warrior-like, right? Zechariah 9.10 says, I will cut off the chariot from... Uh, I always get mad. Ephraim. <laughs> And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle uh, bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends to the earth. So the old covenant context makes it clear that this king came with a different focus than the other 43 kings of Israel and Judah. They came to rule over a particular geographical part. And they were limited by all of that and the spoils of the war. But Jesus came to bring peace to the Gentiles and his dominion from sea to sea. Now, uh, the next section in, ch in chapter 12, if you read on later, verses 20 through 26, deals with the coming of the Gentiles. But in Zechariah, move on, 9-11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So here... The blood of the covenant suggests the blood of the new covenant. The prisoners are set free from this waterless pit just as Jesus offers living water. Living water of the Spirit which flows freely from Himself, right? So from comparing the Gospels, the four Gospels, we learn that Two, two disciples entered a small settlement that's not far from where they were. They, as they entered, they would see a colt, right? Tethered outside of a home. They're going to bring that back to Bethany to Jesus. And that's the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy about Judah. And on his deathbed, Jacob, who God renamed Israel, prophesied uh, for his fourth son, Judah. In Genesis 49, 10, 11, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The Jews saw this passage fulfilled in David of Bethlehem, the first king of Israel from the tribe of Judah. But this prophecy is only uh, imperfectly fulfilled in David, but perfectly fulfilled in Christ, who is Shiloh. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy that all of Israel should have known. They should have known this. So his entry in Jerusalem at Passover time was his statement that he, he was coming to Jerusalem as a king. The whole ideal of, of it being on a donkey, right, that no one else had ever ridden before, it's this, this has this ideal of his exalted position, his sovereignty, and he's going to enter the city declaring himself to be king by doing this. John doesn't tell this, but tell us this, but Matthew tells uh, tell, tells us that he entered the city. It says, uh, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, stirred up saying, who is this? In Matthew 21, 10. So they're all stirred up. And he uses a word that we derive from seismic. We had an earthquake this week, didn't we? <laughs> seismic activity, right? Stirred up is, that's where we get seismic. The city shook with excitement of the possible possible Messiah in their midst. So it's like how how many days then? This is the last week. How many days before the Passover is this? 
If we base it on 12.1 and 12.12, this is like five days. And when you, when you know what people did in that time to prepare for Passover and you know what happens in Jesus' last week, it's parallels, okay? It's, this, this, this is the day according to the law that the lambs of the Passover sacrifice had to be chosen. And so it's no coincidence, all right? This is God's plan. It's His divine providence that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this day. He's identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by John the baptizer in John 1. And he's now coming into the holy city of Jerusalem on the very day that the perfect victims are chosen for the sacrifice at Passover. Jesus was the chosen male sacrifice victim, visible for all to judge his uh, perfection. He's this, the, he was the victim personally selected by the high priest to die for the sake of the people. Earlier, uh, his name Caiaphas who was high priest that year he said one man should die for the people and and that the whole nation should not perish his disciples didn't understand these things at first but it says that when when Jesus was glorified they would remember right it's another note by John to inform us that these events were only fully understood after Christ's resurrection you see it earlier in John 2, 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that, that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here is that crucial turning point in their understanding when it took place, when he was raised from the dead. But in our text, it says when Jesus was glorified, right? But it amounts to the exact same thing. The crowd that, that, that uh, was wanting to see a king, a warrior king, is not going to get that, right? It's going to get a different type of glory. So 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him uh, from the dead continued to bear witness. Now this is a second crowd. In verse 12, we have the large crowd that was coming out of Jerusalem to see him. And here we have a crowd that was there when he raised Lazarus. The crowd surrounded Christ. And since Matthew and Mark wrote that there were uh, many people in front of Jesus and behind him, uh, we, know, we know that this is that crowd. So they continue to bear witness, which means they're still talking about the resurrection of Lazarus. In the next verse, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they had heard that he had done this, right? So this tells us that it was the news of the resurrection of Lazarus that caused the crowd of verse 12 to come out and meet him. So the Pharisees, this is where we ended in 19, that they said, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, the Pharisees' determination to excommunicate Anyone, all right? That, that, that's what they were out for. Excommunicate anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. This is seen in 9.23. And their orders that anyone knowing his whereabouts should report him so they could arrest him in 11.57. All of these have failed 
at this point, right, to intimidate uh, the crowds. So by the world, the Pharisees, Pharisees mean everyone, all right, everyone in the Jerusalem area, including the pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean uh, basin and beyond. All right, now it's, it's hyperbole. The Jews believed that, that God loved only them, okay? Gentiles are filthy dogs, all this stuff. We've talked about it, right? This is what they believed. Nicodemus had the, the ideal that when the Messiah would come, he would come and give the kingdom to the Jews, right? And he would submit the Gentiles to judgment, that was their doctrine. Their doctrine was that the Jews would be saved. Anybody connected with Abraham, right? And everyone else will be judged. So ironically in our text, immediately after they mention the whole world, it's the Greeks approach Jesus in the next verses. So I want to add here too that what Luke has to say about Christ coming into Jerusalem that it's a sorrowful cry. It's his lamentation over Jerusalem. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon uh, another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This was all fulfilled later, 40 years later, when the, the Roman legions under uh, Titus invaded Jerusalem and they, they destroyed it. 1.1 million Jews were killed. And that was the horrible end of Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus foresaw as the judgment of, of God for people who were blind. Jesus said it came because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. They had missed their day. They had not received Christ for who he was. They were trying to make him something else. Their hearts were hardened and Christ's heart was broken. So again, uh, we'll, we'll close now. This is, that's the account. <clears throat> but you, you, you put all four gospel accounts together and we get this picture, okay? Jesus leaves Bethany. He's headed to Jerusalem. Before entering Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him to get a donkey, right? And that's to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Although the disciples do not understand this at that time. And Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He rides on that donkey. Uh, millions, right, probably, or hundreds of thousands at least, follow him from Bethany. And a crowd comes from Jerusalem to greet him. And both crowds accompany him into the city. They're spreading their cloaks and their cut branches on the road before him. And they call out these expressions of desperation. Save us now. And they call him the king of Israel. And the commotion of the celebration reaches those in the city of Jerusalem. And many of these citizens of Jerusalem join in with the rest in welcoming him. 
But the Pharisees become indignant, insisting that Jesus had instructed the people, uh, or, or they, no, sorry, I messed up. They, insisting that Jesus instruct the people to cease this praise. Jesus refuses, indicating that if the people were to remain quiet, the stones would cry out. It's in Luke 19, 39 and 40. And as he looks upon the city of Jerusalem, he weeps, knowing that the reception of him is superficial and it's momentary, momentary, and that the day of Israel's destruction is imminent. And this entry into, in, into Jerusalem is tragic for Israel because the initial reception was based on a false view of a king and of who Jesus was because he came to save them from their sins and being spiritually dead and not from Rome.